Hello, welcome to Akbar's Chamber. I'm your host, Niall Green. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about one of the most famous stories in world literature, and indeed world entertainment, the story of Joseph. But we're not going to be talking about the Broadway version in Android Lloyd Webber's Joseph and his Technicolor Dreamcoat. Instead, we're going to be travelling to East Africa and hearing the Islamic version as told in the Swahili language. The story of Yusuf, known as the Khisati Yusuf. Both the Bible and the Quran tell the famous story of Joseph, or Yusuf, as is known in the Islamic tradition. Yusuf is incredibly beautiful. He's sold into slavery in Egypt sold to a wealthy Egyptian called Potiphar. And it's the wife of Potiphar, who is known not in the Quran, but in the later Islamic tradition as Zuleikha, who becomes one of the most important figures alongside Yusuf in Islamic literature. A story that tells of adventures, of love, and indeed of moral, as well as physical courage. But of course, Yusuf, Joseph, is also a prophet, and as in the Christian and Jewish and Islamic tradition alike, he is famous for his dreams that he tells to Pharaoh or Pharaoh. The story of Joseph has been told many times in many different languages and literatures of the Islamic world, from the Quranic version in the Surah, the chapter of the Quran named after Yusuf, through to the Qasas al-Anbiya, the tales of the Prophet, written and recited in Arabic, that recounted fuller, more dramatic, and more morally, as well as metaphysically infused versions of his story. Then there are also the famous tellings in Persian poetry and various other languages around the Islamic world. Today, though, we're going to be talking about the Swahili versions of the story of Joseph. And we'll be seeing how these Swahili versions, particularly in poetry, told over a period of centuries in manuscripts, in print, in oral performances, and more recently in tapes, CDs, and online readings on YouTube and other platforms. We'll see how these created a living culture, that was both at once entertainment and edification, morality, metaphysics, and the sheer pleasure and the aesthetics of these complex and sophisticated poems that were also among the most popular forms of entertainment in the Swahili world, reaching from East Africa right into the heart of the African continent in Congo and beyond throughout then the Swahili world. Joining me is Professor Anna Kiara Raya, who is a university lecturer at the African Studies Centre at Leiden University in the Netherlands. 
Manuela Chiara. Welcome to Akbos Chamber. Hi, Niall. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. Well, today we're going to be talking about the, the story of Joseph, or the story of Yusuf, as he's known in the Islamic tradition. Yusuf's a really major figure in Islamic tradition throughout many regions of the world. There's an entire chapter, an entire surah of the Quran, the, the 12th chapter, which is simply called Yusuf, Joseph, recounting his story, albeit in a somewhat different, in many ways, broadly similar uh, uh, mode to the Old Testament story of the Bible. And in Islamic tradition, the story of Yusuf is really the great adventure story. It's the great love story. It's also full of moral lessons and in various versions and various readings of the story of, of Yusuf, it's also full of mystical meanings. And all these many layers of the, the story of, of Joseph, Yusuf, we'll just call him from now on, has meant that the story has been retold and expanded and illustrated many times. In the Eastern Islamic world, the versions of Sa'di, the great Persian medieval poet, and the, the Bustan, the Rose Garden, written in around the 1260s, Jami, to centuries later, writing from Herat in what's now Afghanistan, writes one of the most famous versions of the story of Joseph and Zuleikha, about whom we'll hear more later. Um, and many wonderful illustrations were made of that uh, as well. We also have tellings in Bengali and Urdu and Punjabi and other South Asian languages, as well as in languages such as Turkish and so on. But today we're turning to Africa, rather than Asia. And we're turning to Swahili, the language of the Sawahel, the language of the coasts of East Africa. So we're going to be talking then about Joseph, Yusuf in Swahili. So Kara, first of all, can you introduce us to Swahili as a language of literary and religious expression? Yeah, well, thanks. Oh. Swahili was born as a trade language, huh? a lingua franca, basically, for the merchants trading spices, copper and wood from across the Indian Ocean uh, since the last millennium. Uh, yeah. Now, side by side with Islam, the characters of the language of the Holy Quran uh, came to the East African coast um, from the 11th century, actually. Um, the the Waswahili, so the Swahili people, adapted them for their written language, basically. Um, so the Swahili written language and written tradition, the so-called Kiswahili kwa herufi za kiarabu, uh, also known as Ajami writing system, were brought into being somehow. Hmm? So this explains why, despite uh, the grammar and the syntax of Swahili uh, are um, uh, based on a Bantu, uh, uh, based uh, followed uh, the Bantu language system somehow, with regards to its lexicon, uh, a huge portion of Swahili words, well, it stems from Arabic. So we have plenty of words. Let me think of kitabu, uh, kalamu, kuwasili, that means to arrive. Kushukuru to thank. So these old Swahili script uh, based on the Arabic, Arabic letters, um, well, actually not only Arabic letters, but also Urdu and Persian uh, consonants. Um, uh, these old Swahili script uh, has been used as far as back the 11th century. Mm. The earliest examples of the old Swahili script were found on coins and tombstones, the so-called makaburi in Swahili. 
the earliest known Swahili manuscripts, also known as uh, uh, Chuo or Vyu, can be dated back to the 18th century. Uh, and these are the so-called long poems called uh, Tendi. Now, the so-called old Swahili script served the needs of the Swahili society until basically the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, it was used for drawing up uh, trade documents, correspondences, writing down the genealogy of the ruling families, uh, chronicles of towns, literary work, and so on. Unfortunately, the Swahili manuscript dating back to the Middle Ages or even earlier have been lost. So almost all of them were destroyed um, during the Portuguese invasion in the 16th century. Um, yet, unfortunately, uh, many samples of the written heritage have survived in oral form. Uh, so thanks to people able to yeah, memorize uh, even long text by heart. And so in the course of time, they were put down on paper again, thanks to the cooperation indeed of living poets, uh, men and women, like uh, Muhammad Ikijuma, Sheikh Nabahani, his mother Amina Bubakar, uh, who together with also European missionaries and scholars made um, yeah, the first steps um, uh, towards, uh, say, a canonization also of Swahili classical literature. Um, when I mentioned Swahili scholars or, uh, or European scholars, I could think of Ludwig Kraft, Alice Berner, and Stalman, uh, just to mention a few. Uh, Ludwig, Ludwig Kraft, actually, the first Christian missionary who began, began his activity not far from Mombasa in 1945, um, he sent two old Swahili manuscripts of very long poems in Kiswahili to a library in, in Germany in 1854. Uh, besides them, there are great collections uh, of Swahili manuscript uh, stored uh, at the British Library in London, at the uh, School of Oriental and African Studies in London too, uh, but also in Hamburg and Berlin and elsewhere. I'm thinking about the microfilm collection of SOAS also stored in at Bayreuth University or the collection of Swahili Muslim printed booklets stored at Leiden University in the Netherlands. Uh, in 1849, it's important to remember, however, that there was a shift in, uh, in, uh, in uh, a huge shift in the literary tradition. Uh, the German missionary Kraft, um, he printed and published uh, his translation of the first three chapters of the Bible. And this was the first printed Swahili text in Roman script ever. Um, or, uh, yeah. Um, until that time, Swahili had been uh, written solely in Arabic-based script. So Arabic was Swahili's native written form huh? and uh, forged indeed the native literature, as, uh, as uh, Williamson has also put it. Um, in the preface to the first dictionary of Swahili language, Kraft uh, even uh, explained um, several reasons for imposing, we could say, the Roman alphabet on the language, um, among which was the need to check uh, the spread of Islam among the inland communities and also the conviction uh, that it was the ideal script somehow for preparing the Swahili native reader. Uh, to get accustomed to and exposed to the study of other European languages in Roman script, such as English. 
Nowadays, Kiswahili can be, I believe, regarded truly as a, say, Aloha Bilam Paka, so a language without borders, uh, taught up to, to Ghana, for instance. Um, and we can certainly, I believe, claim that there is not just a unique Swahili, uh, but rather, how to say, uh, because the Swahili word is not a unified word uh, either. Uh, it's rather, in a way, part of a social sphere where there, there is a wider and changing multilingual environment um, where other language and script, such as uh, Ordo, Gujarati, English, they have all played a role to some extent. Sadly, though, uh, contrary to English and or Arabic, Swahili is taught only in primary schools uh, in uh, Kenya, for instance, um, where English is the language used to, to in the educational system. And um, yeah, um, and also the practice of writing Swahili and Arabic script, like uh, handwriting Swahili and Arabic script, is of course no longer a very common literary practice. Um, uh, there are, however, a few uh, precious exceptions, I'd say, uh, that should be mentioned. Um, I'm thinking of the poet Imam and Baker uh, from Lamu Island, Mahmoud Ahmed Abdul Qadir, who writes only in Swahili and Arab script up to nowadays, even for a simple grocery shopping list, for instance. I'm thinking of Buanakheri from Pate Island, who does the same, or uh, the female poet, the Zainab Arudaini from Malindi too. So the Swahili they use might reveal also different regional varieties. Uh, Kiamu spoken on Lamu on one side and Kipate spoken on the so-called Kibajuni islands on the other side. Um, interesting enough, there are also along the coast, the Sahwahil uh, that you mentioned before, local printers that uh, print old texts once uh, used to be handwritten down in Swahili narrow script through simple or new, um, uh, highly, um, um, through uh, their keyboards. These are more or less layman printing shops, we could say. Um, uh, let me give you other few examples. The Rauda print shop in Lamo, uh, uh, where they sell copies of the Kishamiya poem in both scripts, Roman and Arabic. Uh, I'm thinking of Abdallah Shakshabibi, whom I met in Malindi, who is the copist himself, who used to type and print Swahili old literary text in Arabic script, following the examples of his predecessors and teachers, like uh, the Ustad who taught him at Mambrui, uh, where even from where early copies of the so-called Utendiwa Mona Kupona, uh, the poem of Moana Kupona, a, a beautiful didactic poem, um, has been um, uh, produced and printed in Swahili and Arabic script. Well, nowadays, Kiswahili yeah, can be regarded as a language uh, bila mipaka, so without borders, um, that is taught up to Ghana, uh, which is, of course, uh, impressive. Um, sadly, though, contrary to English and Arabic, Kiswahili is taught only in uh, primary schools in Kenya, for instance, where um, uh, the language used in the school system is uh, English instead. Um, also, the dialectal variety, variety spoken on Lamo, uh, the so-called Kiamu language, that once was the literary language par excellence, by means of which so many tendi were composed, uh, is nowadays not regarded as um, the pure and correct Swahili um, to be taught in Swahili language classes all around Kenya. 
So the only Kiswahili accepted in the Kenyan education system right now is the so-called Kiswahili Saniku, so the standard Swahili, based on the variety of Zanzibar and Guja Island. Um, so um, uh, interesting enough, old words uh, used in Kiambu dialect and present in so many old poems, um, for instance, book that was also used to be uh, known as a chuo. Um, well, nowadays, would let a student in Kenya, for instance, fail his or her own Swahili exam, because uh, this is a meaning that has not been ascribed to the word as such right now, um, where chuo, a plural view, only means university. <laughs> Um, so, in a way, old precious also meanings uh, hidden within the language, uh, within the regional varieties of uh, the so many uh, Kiswahili that we know, may um, may may get lost in the in the in the long run somehow. Uh, That's really really so interesting, Anakura. You've given us this sense then as of this Swahili world, as you've called it, and and even mm -hmm. more things sort of. Uh, uh, sonorously, really, this language without borders. I mean, it, it makes me yeah. think in many ways. I mean, we we have across the Islamic world, across the the pre-modern world, really, the pre-world of nation states. We we have so many of these languages which have moved to different places: Arabic and Persian, and various versions of Turkish. But of course, in the modern world of nation states, some states have claimed those languages. And, and sort of standardized them and promoted them. But as you said, with Swahili, it's sort of strength and in some ways it's sort of, its weakness is the fact that it's not being sort of claimed, caught and uh, and in some ways standardized by at least not many states. But still this language without borders, having emerged along the coasts of East Africa and having, I suppose it's, correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, it's kind of its earlier home along the coast of what's now uh, Tanzania and, and and Kenya, but moving up, I suppose, towards Somalia and southwards to Mozambique. But as you mentioned, it's moved inland through traders and through others up to what's now the Congo. And indeed, as, as you mentioned, as far as Ghana and West Africa. So this extraordinarily important language in its reach. And you've also, I think, given us this, this helpful sense of that this is really a, a language of, of interactions. Scholars of the Indian Ocean, of course, the, the coast of East Africa is part of that. And the emergence of Swahili is this language that's mixing between uh, <clears throat> the local language base of the Bantu language sort of grammar, but with so much, as you mentioned, the, of the Arabic script and Arabic um, uh, vocabulary and genres to some extent as well. But then through the arrival of European missionaries, and you mentioned the key figure of, of, of Krapf, in the 1850s, the German Protestant missionary introduced the, the Roman script, the Latin script, and also printing, so that people who, perhaps listeners who have been to East Africa and say, well, I've seen Swahili, but I thought that was in written not in Arabic script. And that's because, again, this is another <laughs> of these interactions and the spread of Roman script. But what we're talking about today is genres that, I guess, have been printed in the Latin script, but also still survive in the original Arabic script and that transition then that you've talked us through from medieval manuscripts that were lost, but tombstones in Arabic script Swahili that survive. And now this sort of revival really through more recent forms of printing and computer-based printing of, of Arabic script Swahili. And you also mentioned, I suppose, for, for listeners, the word 
T-Swahili is coming up, the more correct name for the language that I'm just calling Swahili in the sort of the more common version. But yeah, it, it's the same thing, Kiswahili and Swahili. So among the, yes. the key genres of, of Swahili literary expression then are the Utendi poem, or in the plural that we might hear, the, the Tendi, the Utendi poem. Tendi in the plural, Utendi. And and also the Qissa tale. And the Qissa is the sort of an Arabic word that we have borrowed into Persian and Urdu and other languages, but also into Swahili then. It's a word just meaning a tale, a story. So can you give us some examples of these uh, Utendi poems and Qissa tales? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, um, let me first comment on indeed Utendi and the Qissa as, as Jean to begin with. But uh, yeah, and then there will be great examples uh, for you indeed. Um, the first thing to, to point out is that beyond being a specific genre, the Utendi one, uh, to be composed by means of a specific prosodic pattern uh, made of um, actually 16 syllables and the final monosyllabic rhyme, the term uh, Tendi, uh, standing from in, indeed Kiamu and known in Swahili standard as Tenzi, is also often used by expansion to any form of long and dialogical uh, mimetic composition, even if the meter as such is not the Utendi meter. For instance, the Kisa Chanabi Isa, the story of the prophet Isa, uh, Jesus, uh, in, um, in the biblical version, ascribed to a 20th century poet from, from Lamu called uh, Muhammad Kijuma, uh, this story uh, is, for instance, called Kisa, right? We can see it in the title. Uh, but this composed in the Utendi meter. Mm. Or the other way around, we have uh, the so-called Utendi wa wasia wa mabanati. So the poem about advice to the young girls, composed in 1974 by a still-living poet, uh, Mahmoud Ahmad Abdul Qadir. And uh, well, this poem is known as an Utendi because it's very long. It's a long, long poem made of 140 stanzas. But in fact, it was composed in a meter, in a meter that resembles the Dura al Manduma meter. So, not anything to do with the, um, the prosodic pattern of Utendi. Now, when it comes to the story of the prophets, um, for instance, Job, uh, Yub uh, in Swahili, or Isa, uh, uh, Jesus, Yunus, Jonah, or uh, Yusuf, uh, Joseph. Um, well, these are common subjects that uh, we can find both in the Kisas um, uh, genre as well as in the Tendi narratives. Contrary to the Quran, uh, which uh, talks about the prophets here and there in the passages of various surahs, um, the prophet's life pre presents a coherent text in the case of both the Tendi and the, the Kisa uh, traditions. Um, the life of each prophet uh, is not confined to brief snapshots, uh, form, uh, but it's turned into a long and detailed story, adapted to prose when it comes to the Kisat genre, or poetic form when it comes to the Tendi genre. Um, 
Yeah, another interesting thing is that, uh, um, as I'll show you with a few examples uh, very soon, is also that um, the Kisot and, and the, the Utendi, they do share a set of topoian motives, um, uh, like, for instance, surrounding um, some characters, like Ali in the Utendi wa Hautaji, or uh, uh, Jacob, Yaqub uh, in the story of Yusuf, or uh, Iblis um, and Jibril in uh, in the story of Job. Um, I mentioned Hali, so let me allow me to let you give a rough idea about the story where this character plays such an important role. Uh, I'm thinking of particularly this relatively famous tendi, um, Utendi, that has been studied in relation to the Mahkasi literature as well. It's the Utendi wa Haudaji. Um, that means the poem of the palanquin. Now, it is said it's a poem that is after the Hijra, uh, Muhammad, who had newly arrived in Medina, was longing for his wife and daughter, who were still in Mecca, though. So he sent Ali, uh, the so-called hero-to-be, uh, to Mecca to, to fetch the ladies, basically. And well, when Ali arrived there, um, well, uh, and uh, revealed his plans, uh, the clan elders who opposed Islam were against Ali's plans. Um, Ali did not uh, care about their disapproval and left the town together with the ladies. Um, so the part of the family that is anger is in anger, follows Ali's caravan with the intention of attacking it and uh, bringing the ladies back to Mecca. Uh, and uh, Finally, Ali confronts the enemies in the final battle, that is very much also the climax of the poem, where he kills thousands of soldiers with the support of God himself. Uh, and at the very end, Ali and the caravan uh, manage to reach Medina, um, where the prophet welcomes him and the ladies. Uh, it's a beautiful utendi indeed that has been studied um, and extensively translated also. Um, among the didactic tendi, um, it's worth mentioning also a few others, like the Utendi Wasiraji, the poem of the lantern, and Utendi Wa Monakupona, the poem of Monakupona. Um, they are based um, based on the model of the Utendi Wa Monakupona, also the Utendi Wasiraji. It's um, um, they are both didactic in the sense that there is a poor narrator, a father or a mother that advises um, uh, his, her daughter, um, uh, who is about to get married. Um, so in the Monacupona, we have the mother advising her daughter, who is about to get married on the right uh, conduct, conduct towards her husband. Um, and in the same way, in the Siraji poem, um, we have a wasia, so an advice from the narrator, the poet Kijuma, uh, to his, uh, towards his only son, Helewa. Some of the Arabic kisses, Al-Nabiya, the stories of the prophets, versions uh, became, as we know, of course, uh, spread, uh, widespread actually in many Islamic countries, uh, thanks to Muslim um, traveling preachers and storytellers, uh, the so-called kusas, um, from the Arabic, Arabic root kasasa, to tell, to narrate. Uh, they used to appropriate these stories um, for moralistic as well as entertainment purpose somehow. Um, 
And uh, well, the arrival of these kind of stories, the stories of the prophets at the Swahili coast, uh, is allegedly ascribed um, being Cairo or Mumbai. Bombay. Um, Arabic uh, source books such as the Kisas were in wide distribution even in uh, printed form along the Swahili coast from the late 19th century onwards as, as um, was attest uh, in Becca. Um, so the poet adapter of Tendi on prophets might have relied on even on printed versions of the Kisas for their composition in the Tendi form. The reference to the Arabic source is uh, often clearly mentioned by the Swahili poet in his Utendi rendition. This is, I believe, uh, a beautiful some, somehow even to study. So, for instance, the, the poem of, uh, of Job, of uh, um, Ayubu in Swahili, um, well, it opens as it follows. Let me read um, a few stanzas for you. That I may write uh, an Arabic story with the history of Job, the messenger sent by the Lord. I wish to narrate to you, explaining the Arabic in our language clearly, so that there may not be any words which are not plain to him. I am able to explain, making clear in our language, and you, when you listen, you will understand it all. Composing and writing those words which are in the book, I, I translated them from Arabic and sang them to you in Swahili. Very nice. Well, that's given us a, a, a real sense, Chiara, then, of, of this movement yeah. described of stories that were the Quranic, well, as you mentioned, I mean, the Quran, the Surah of Yusuf is one of the more narrative bits of the Quran, but generally speaking, the Quran isn't, let's say, like the New or the Old Testament of the Bible, that is, a, it's not a narrative text in that way. And so they developed these genres, didn't we, particularly the genre you mentioned in, in Arabic, of the the, 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 the stories of the prophets, which did create these narrative versions of, of, in a sense, commentaries, elaborations, expositions of the Quranic allusions, I suppose, rather than stories of the of the pre-Islamic prophets, like, as you mentioned, Job, Ayub, Jacob, Yaqub, and, uh, and of course, our focus on, on Joseph, Yusuf. And you've given us this sense, too, of the, of the interplay between the, the, both these Arabic versions and the the Swahili the key Swahili versions but also between the printed versions and the oral versions and the prose versions and and crucially these very metrically sophisticated uh types of Swahili poetry the the utendi which as you mentioned has a very fixed number of metrical feet and so on and this is you know very rich poetic compositions which can be orally performed as well as sometimes printed whether in Latin script or in, in Arabic script. And so one of the most fascinating then of these stories, then these tales, these these kisas or indeed these utendi poems is, is the story of, of, of Yusuf, the biblical Quranic story of, of Joseph then. So can you tell us how this story was transmitted to East Africa and and how it was then transformed and retransmitted in turn in, in Swahili in these poetic genres and these kissa tales that you've been sketching out for us more generally. Yes, well, the story was transmitted by means of poetry uh, and in vernacular language in Arabic script. And uh, yeah, um, mainly for a Muslim audience uh, not accustomed to read Arabic, al-Fusa. 
the several recorded written versions in existence uh, let us assume that it was also written down by several copists uh, and owned in different households, um, interesting enough. Um, the recited versions of the poem, uh, the performed ones, as you also said, might be older even, and then later they might have been recorded, uh, they have been recorded on tapes or, and CDs, and uh, up to nowadays available for sale. Um, remarkably, all the existing handwritten manuscript or printed versions of Diutendi Wa Yusuf that count up to 15 right now, they are always made of uh, a general tripartite structure, um, uh, very typical of Diutendi Jean. Uh, so they, they are made of a uh, dibaji, that is uh, an incipit, um, a core story, or the actual plot that in turn is made of several episodes, each breaking into same say scenes. And finally, there is a tamati, uh, that means a conclusion, uh, where very often you may be, uh, the reader may be uh, luck, uh, lucky enough to, to hear more about who was the poet, when the poem was composed and where. Now, despite Tendi are by definition, as, as we said, uh, long narrative poems in verse form, not only they have to stick to a specific, to a specific uh, set of prosodic rules in order to be called as such indeed, but they also have to uh, elaborate in rhyme form a narrative that um, unravels stanzas after stanza. So, their narrative is very often dialogical uh, with a, a reach, um, with an abundance of direct speeches on the part of the protagonist, for instance, which allows the poem to progress smoothly um, while also creating suspense. Um, the Basmala, the, the Basmala in Arabic, so Bismillah, Rahman, Rahim, usually opens the, the Dibaji, the Incipit. Uh, each episode forms then, if you want, a narrative unit in itself, like, uh, say, an act in a theater play. I list for Dutani Wa Yusuf and uh, titled uh, 11 episodes. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, these episodes depict trials, tricks, signs, miracles, um, uh, and, and, and more and more. These so-called stories within the stories um, uh, are amazing because they truly raise suspense um, while reading, um, since they hardly ever lead directly to the final resolution, but rather postpone it. Uh, so they make the reader even more curious to, to read further and to go until the end. Each episode is framed by its own setting as well. So for instance, in Jutandi Wa Yusuf, we may have uh, Kanan in episode two as, as the proper setting. And then we may shift to Potiphar's house in Egypt, um, still in episode five. Uh, the constellation of characters, of course, framing each episode may also change uh, accordingly. The end of an episode uh, is also interesting to study and to look into because may be or may not be explicitly announced by the first person narrator's voice who may come in uh, and suggest the reader to move on. Like, let me now talk about Yusuf. 
um, there is indeed a stanza that I noted for you where the poem narrator comes within the story and says, Ya babake ya misia, ya yusufu tarijea, be ya lomtokea rehema zailahia. That translates, and having concluded the story about his father, that means Jacob, uh, Jacob, I will now return to Yusuf, seeing what happened to him in the future with the mercies of the Lord. Hmm? Now, in comparison to the Kisat to Yusuf as narrated by Athalabi, for instance, um, uh, where there we, we would found a host of viewpoints on specific events, like, for instance, the the different views offered by the narrator about the sign that restrained Yusuf from fornication. Um, this, was the, in this was the early Arabic version, wasn't it, that you're referring to by Asmanabi? Absolutely, exactly, the Arabic. In Dutandi wa Yusuf, however, the reader becomes much more involved in, um, say, in the event through a palpable way of narrating the story. So we don't have a long chain of viewpoints about the event as such, but rather a sequence of extended stanzas. So in around 700 stanzas um, that uh, framed Dutandi wa Yusuf, the poet tries to make the reader empathize with the story, with the character, uh, mainly with Yusuf. So in comparison with Akisa to Yusuf in Arabic, uh, Dutandi wa Yusuf rather expands, we could say, and extends the, nar the narrative text of the, of the Kisas, of the Kisat. It, it somehow Dutandi wa Yusuf takes the Kisat Yusuf in Arabic as a starting point and then reformulates it by delving into its scenes um, deeply. And yeah, well, I must say that interestingly, the story has also been adapted for a Swahili and Christian audience. Um, I'm thinking of the so-called Utenzi, Utenzi wa Yusufu, composed by Evaristo Mahimbi in 1975 and published by Ndanda Mission Press of Tanzania. So this is the first Utandi adaptation uh, of the story of Yusuf based solely on the biblical account. Mm. It's shorter. It's shorter than the Islamic version. So it counts only 460 stanzas and um, includes a short glossary of uh, some difficult words at the end. Uh, of course, it's an Utenzi uh, written in Roman script um, uh, where no uh, reference to the Quran may be found. Um, uh, instead, in the Dibaji, so we don't have a Basmala like a typical Islamic uh, Swahili uh, poem would have, but uh, rather um, uh, a reference to a woman called, uh, a female figure actually called Ferdinanda, whom we may consider being the, the wife um, of the poet, so the author's wife. Um, it also includes, the poem as such includes drawings of some uh, topical scene uh, um, uh, illustrated, uh, like for instance, uh, the, the drawing of Yusuf being sold off to Egypt or uh, the illustration um, depicting Potiphar's wife longing for Yusuf, or also the drawing of um, Yusuf's dream of cows, uh, no, revealing the seven years of prosperity and the seven years of hunger. Um, so, if you, we could say that instead, in the Swahili Muslim version of the of the story of Joseph, 
certainly we can't we cannot find illustrations uh, there is rather a fairly high presence of Quranic quotations embedded between the stanzas um, the quotations mainly come from Surat Yusuf but also from the Kisat Yusuf in Arabic and uh, well in well in uh, in in cases of well copied down manuscripts uh, uh, one can even appreciate the quotations because they are highly I mean they are nicely quoted in uh, red ink uh, that stands out vis-a-vis -vis the, the Swahili stanzas uh, in black ink. Well, you've given us this, this impression, really, of, of, of the way in which the, these kissas these as, as, as popular stories, as well as highly artistic productions in, in poetry, were, on the one level, they're adventures, aren't they? There's the, there's the kidnapping of, of, of Yusuf, and he's being sold into, into slavery in Africa. There's the, the love story dimension, then, with Potiphar's wife, usually known as Uzulecha in the... the Arabic tradition that they're not mentioned as such in the Quran as the and and also you mentioned of course the suspense because these are very long poems aren't they we nowadays I guess in English we often tend to think of a poem as the length of a sonnet despite the existence of a mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. etc but you know these are the length of a book but it's, uh, but it's, as in so much of sort of Islamic literature prose isn't really considered as important as poetry so so here we're having Swahili too what others might in the European tradition might have emerged as a novel or a prose story. This is entirely often told in, in, in verse, in, in this metrical version of the Utendi, these long poems. But as well as the adventures and the battles, the kidnapping, the love story, the suspense, there, there are also these, these moral themes in, uh, in, uh, in these stories as well. So can you tell us about perhaps some of these moral themes and lessons that the Swahili version of the story of Yusuf, Joseph, promoted among the the Muslim peoples of, of East Africa. Yes, so to Yusuf, uh, but also other prophet stories, right? We could say they lend uh, themselves very well to a certain kind of moral agenda, right? Um, since after all, prophets are the people who are most um, afflicted uh, because of all the torments they have had to undergo, uh, living among, saying the unbelievers. Um, what is striking, though, I think, in Yutendi Wa Yusuf um, form is that um, in so many passages uh, or episodes, um, quite differently from the uh, Kisat Yusuf as narrated in Akhtala, for instance, um, which instead aims to instill courage in people's heart through examples of perseverance, patience, and bravery uh, from which people can, can draw inspiration. In Jutandi Wa Yusuf, um, well, um, the, the, the poet, uh, he wants to make its audience experience compassion and suffer with Yusuf, with the protagonist, uh, with the aim of making listeners reconsider and even after, um, even uh, change, so to say, their own behavior. So uh, the story is full of patterns and mimetic scenes. Uh, key moral themes and lessons are delivered um, in the Swahili case of Yusuf via key characters and scenes, basically. Um, so they are not provided by the narrator um, as in other didactic poems uh, may happen. Uh, one of the characters 
that certainly uh, is a sample for the Swahili reader and audience um, is the father of Joseph, uh, Yaqub, Jacob, um, because he mirrors very much the value of uh, fatherly love, we could say, and patience, as he had to wait for so many years before he could see his son again. Other lessons are given through, of course, Yusuf and uh, his brothers. They perfectly mirror the society also of nowadays, actually, where hate can prevail on love and uh, even within families. Yusuf for sure teaches a lesson of uh, perseverance, patience and forgiveness. Um, and yeah, well, altogether, we can say that the Swahili Kisat Yusuf is a message of mercy, Rahma, uh, Rehema in Swahili, that the audience is supposed to keep in mind as a path towards a pious and righteous uh, life. Uh. Actually, among the most evocative lines, we I'd like to, to read aloud, for instance, a few passages in which Yusuf speaks proudly about um, his morals uh, to the woman, uh, Zuleha, who attempted to seduce him. And uh, there is a line where he says, um, it's, it's in episode five, just to give you a rough idea where we are. And he says, uh, I fear my God. And you, madam, are aware no wrongdoer will ever succeed. I am Muslim, all of these I know. Mm. So in already in uttering uh, a simple sentence like um, I am a Muslim, all of these I know, or I fear my God, uh, the reader truly feels for Yusuf and tries to, yeah, to, to empathize as well. Another favorite line, actually, for me, uh, is towards the end of the poem, when finally Yusuf's dream is uh, becoming true. And then the poet narrator says, uh, um, yeah, I must read it in Swahili because it's so beautiful, but there is a translation for you, I promise. Kula mwenye kusubiri muishoni ni kuyakere, kwa amri ya jabari apanashaka kwa haya. So every man who is patient, ultimately he attains happiness. By God's will, there can be no doubt about it. Uh, so here one can see very much you know, this idea of um, uh, being patient to persevere and um, ultimately yeah, to, 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 to attain uh, happiness indeed to, um, no, the, um, after so, such a long uh, suffer and, uh, and uh, such a long journey. Interesting, though, as well, the uh, the presence of moral lessons uh, uh, hidden, if we want, between the lines, so to say, applies um, to all the prophet stories. Um, if we think about that for a second, uh, we should also not forget an, in uh, in a specific ayah of the Quran, uh, um, um, 111th. The, um, the purpose of the Prophet's stories um, uh, is um, openly stated. Hmm? It is said that uh, in the stories of the Prophet, the, there is surely a lesson for uh, a man that uh, is possessed of minds. Hmm? It's not a tale forge, uh, but rather a confirmation of what is before it. Um, it's a guidance, a mercy to people who believe. So. I, I believe this is also very much saying and telling and yeah there is also 
another passage uh, in Surat Yusuf, actually, that Ayat 7, um, that um, uh, also open, clearly says how many signs the story of Yusuf may contain. Lakat kana fi Yusufawa ikhwatian ayatan fi ayatali sali saliina. So in Joseph and his brothers uh, were signs for those who ask questions, um, which which is true, which is absolutely true. What you've given us is, I think, a sense of the, it made me actually think of, of the English novelist E.M. Forster and his influential work of literary theory, aspects of the novel, and his sort of now famous, sort of become part of the language, really, differentiation between flat and rounded characters, you know, kind of in, in narrative. And... And I think you've given us this, this sense of the 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 prophets, Yusuf, not least, as as really being rounded characters in in Forster's sense. The prophets are heroes, yeah, but they struggle. They have courage. They have compassion and perseverance, and these kind of fully rounded sense of the human being, and also shown in their um, in their family context too. These are heroes who are members of families and with family obligations too. So in this sense, really kind of fully rounded figures, which are very complex narrative um, kind of creations, as well, of course, as moral creations that allow the listeners to to learn from them and not sort of, again, the, the flat way of some kind of Hollywood action hero, but in this fully rounded sense of someone who is heroic, is courageous, has perseverance through suffering but nonetheless remains part of a, a family as well yeah. with the complex moral obligations that family life and community and professional life kind of bring about. I also actually would made me think of, of uh, Thomas Mann's um, famous Joseph and his brothers when you mentioned that too, because of course the, the great moral potential of the story of Joseph has been explored. Absolutely. In the great Western, or one of the great greatest Western novelist of the 20th, 20th century. Yeah, well, absolutely. Uh, Thomas Mann's masterpiece uh, on Joseph and, and his brother is, is amazing. And of course, there, if you want, uh, the, the author has even had uh, plenty of room to indeed uh, dig into you know, uh, the psychology of uh, every character, actually, to begin with uh, the, the protagonist, with Yusuf. Um, it's also it's also interesting to 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 attempt a kind of close reading of both every despite belonging pertaining to two different completely literary words somehow and to see though however how eventually they may be so close to each other in the sense that uh, um, Thomas Mann interestingly enough also um, drew from some uh, Persian sources. I mean, uh -huh. Jami was one of the main sources that he was also inspired by and uh, very much referred to, particularly in the section uh, related to the love story, uh, the, the best story ever between Yusuf and Zuleha. So uh, interesting enough to think how in uh, two different epochs, littéraire, if you want, um, writers may have uh, uh, gone through no shared uh, heritage or shared literary um, sources to to re-elaborate and to dig further into the stories. So, well, we all know, of course, that uh, Josef and Seine is 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 uh, it's a huge made of even four volumes. 
but of course, uh, I mean, vis-a-vis -vis 740 sensors in Utendi, yeah, we could say that in, in, in two completely different ways, uh, both authors have truly tried to uh, study uh, the psychology of the characters and to uh, empathize with them, to let them speak for themselves and indeed to, yeah, also to highlight, I mean, to, to let some uh, crucial moral lesson come to the surface um, uh, in the very end. Um, uh, uh, yeah. This gives us really a sense, isn't it, of how how traditions work, whether the Judeo-Christian tradition, Islamic tradition, obviously with Joseph Yusuf as a shared figure between them, because it's a phrase often used in, in teaching that a tradition is a, a conversation that lasts for centuries. And and we sort of really kind of see that, don't we? Particularly, let's say, you know, with the Islamic tradition, that the the, the Quranic story of, of Yusuf is uh what is it, uh, 111 ayat, so, you know, kind of 111 kind of verses. It's sort of, you know, one of, the, one of the longer narratives, but still, it's not anything like as long as the more elaborated conversation, sort of exposition, the sort of engagement with with this uh, scriptural version that we see, whether in Thomas Mann's four volumes or, yeah, with these very long Utendi poems in, in Swahili. So through these various engagements, these conversations that last for centuries then around the the Swahili and the early Arabic story and stories of, of Joseph. We, we've heard that this isn't only a story told through manuscripts. You've mentioned or alluded to throughout our conversation different versions in on, on printed texts as well as uh, uh, CDs and etc. So how is the story of Yusuf kept alive in Swahili today? The, well, the story of Yusuf is a story, we could say, truly with long legs, huh? as scholars have noticed indeed. Nowadays, um, DVDs on Yusuf in Arabic or Swahili are easily available in many shops on Lamu Island, in Mombasa, but also in Dar es Salaam in Tanzania and markets in Mozambique. The DVD on Yusuf's story in Swahili is titled, for instance, um, Historia Nabi Yusuf, alayhi salam, um, the history of the Prophet Yusuf, peace be upon him. It's part of the title indeed. And uh, well, the DVD, the story depicts the story as told by Sheikh, Sheikh Uthman Malim. And um, the DVD um, that I wanted absolutely to watch last two hours and 30 minutes and is also um, currently available on YouTube um, uh, by courtesy of the Radawa Islamic channel. Uh, it was posted in May 2013, I guess, uh, under the title, however, of Kisa Chanabi Yusuf, back to the double um, uh, uh, back to Utendian uh, Kisa. Um, the scenes uh, uh, in the in the DVD in the film are clearly um, uh, evoking an Arabic setting, uh, um, uh, as you may want to see. Um, they are often interrupted by the public reading and commentary of the Sheikh uh, himself. Um, the DVD from Mozambique, uh, while it was brought to me, um, and it's composed in the Makua language and called um, Yusufo and Makua. Hmm. I got it through Clarissa Figo traveled up to there. And uh, well, then after that, in September 2016, um, uh, 
while strolling through the numerous uh, Muslim bookshops in Karyaku in Dar es Salaam, I, I was able to find uh, the first edition uh, of the short story uh, of the life of the Prophet Yusuf, Maisha Yanabi Yusuf, salam, in prose form. Um, but also the story of Musa, Maisha Yanabi Musa, Hassan, Ibrahim, the Prophet Yunus, um, and many others. The booklets are sold for a few shillings, often printed in India and mainly being published by the Adam Traders Publishing House in Mombasa. Uh, I believe that, well, this phenomenon tells a lot, doesn't it? Uh, we can truly see the ongoing diffusion of textual and cultural appropriation of the story in Eastern Africa. This is indeed a beautiful story and so worth it may continue traveling far and wide. So yeah, I'd say then, Tembea, Yusuf Tembea, travel, Joseph, travel. What a wonderful ending. I simply cannot possibly cap that. Professor Anakira Raya, thank you so much for talking to us today in Akbar's Chamber. Thank you, Niall Green. Da 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 da